good to see each one of you here tonight. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. Uh, let me just say that tonight and tomorrow night, I'm going to be bringing two messages uh, on the biblical doctrine of self-defense. I was asked to bring these, and I think it's a very timely uh, message, and I certainly want you to understand the biblical as well as the historical background. Let me point out that the Word of God is relevant in every area of life. There is not one area of life that is not covered in the Word of God. I do not care if you're talking about education, economics, family, law, military, doesn't matter. The Word of God covers every principle and every subject. So I want you to notice in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20, and I'm going to read this one verse and take the entire night to explain it, hopefully, and give you not only some historical background, but a lot of scriptural admonitions in light of it as well. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it's a verse that everyone can quote. You may not know exactly what it is, but it is the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. So Lord willing, tonight I'm going to begin this message on the biblical doctrine of self-defense. One of my favorite stories is about the old pilgrim pastor who was walking to church with his old blunderbuss on his shoulder. As he was walking to church, a man approached him and said, Pastor, let me ask you several questions. The first question is, do you not believe in the absolute sovereignty of God? The pastor responded, well, yes, of course I do. Well, he said, Pastor, next, do you not believe that when it's your time to go, you're going to die and there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it? That God has not only ordained the time of your birth, but also the time of your death. Pastor said, certainly, I believe that. Well, he said, Pastor, if you believe that God is absolutely sovereign, and if you believe that the day of your death is ordained, and you're going to die, and there's nothing you can do about it, my question is, why are you carrying that blunderbuss to church? Pastor said, well, that's easy. In case I meet an Indian whose time it is to die. So, very obviously, he had uh, something in mind. You know, most of us have never understood the fact that our forefathers not only went around armed, but they were armed even when they went to church. Years ago, I obtained an old book. The title of the book was The Sabbath of Puritan New England, written by Alice Morse Earl. Thankfully, that book has been reprinted, and you can also find it on the Internet as well. And in the second chapter... She gives a lot of historical information as to how a lot of our modern-day habits came to pass. In fact, in those days, those old Puritans, in order to sanctify the Sunday loading of their weapons, the pastor instructed his people that they were not to discharge those weapons on the Lord's Day unless it was in an Indian or a wolf, which, of course, were their two main dangers during that particular time. Trumbull, who was the historian of Connecticut, in his poem, and uh, MacFingal wrote a poem about our forebears taking their weapons to church. He did it in jest, and here's the simple little poem. So once for fear of Indian beating, our grandsires wore their guns to meeting. Each man equipped on Sunday morn with psalm book, shot, and powder horn, and looked in form as all must grant, like the ancient true church militant. <laughs> Certainly, 
he hit the nail on the head. But in the formation of our nation, everyone bore arms, and they even bore them on the Lord's Day. In fact, there were laws that required men to bring their weapons to church. For instance, in 1640 in Massachusetts, it was ordered that the attendant to church should carry a competent number of pieces, fixed and complete, with powder, shot, and swords every Lord's Day to the meeting house. So they not only had to carry their old blunderbusses, but they had to carry their swords as well. In Connecticut in 1643, those who failed to bring their weapons to church were fined 12 cents for each offense. Now, 12 cents doesn't sound like much today, but certainly back then it was. But in 1644, there was a law that demanded a fourth part of a trained band, that is, trained fighting men, come to church armed each Sunday, and the sentinels had to always keep their matches lighted for their matchlocks in case they had to shoot them quickly at some Indian or someone who trying to harm those who were worshiping at that particular time. In 1692 in Connecticut, the legislature ordered that one-fifth of the soldiers in the town must attend the Sunday meeting in order to protect those who were worshiping. Wouldn't it be wonderful if one-fifth of the soldiers had to go to church and at least listen? But, of course, they were there to protect the people. Many of our modern-day habits stem from the old days and the honored customs of those days. Have you ever noticed that men usually sit on the end of pews in church? If you've never noticed that, you ought to do that. I remember when I was a boy, I would see men on the ends of the pews all the time, and I wondered why in the world that was. And it so affected me that when I became an adult, anytime I sat in church, always sat on the end of a pew. And it never dawned on me why. And the answer is very simple. Because since they carried their weapons to church, the men would stack their weapons in the middle of the aisle, and the men then were on the end of the pews where they could simply reach over and grab their weapons. The women and children were on the inside of the pews. They were protected. They would not be in the way, and they would be very easily grabbed to defend their families and to the church as well. Now, I particularly like this next little tidbit of history. You see, it's the custom of the pastor after the service is over. He walks to the back of the church and he stands there and guess what? People come by and shake his hand and tell him what a wonderful message that he brought. Hmm? Have you ever wondered why preachers would go to the door of the church first after service has ended? You say, well, that's obvious. I mean, he goes back there so people can shake his hands. Well, let me tell you, if people just simply wanted to shake hands, they can come to the front of the church as easily as he could walk to the back of the church. It's not about shaking hands. The pastor, who, of course, was the under-shepherd under Christ, the man who was responsible for the flock, would always go to the back doors first and look out to see whether or not there was any danger lurking. He was first and foremost, if there were no Indians around, later on, if there were no redcoats around, then the men filed out after him, and then, of course, the women and the children. So the pastor went back first in order to be the lookout and to warn the people as to whether or not there was danger around him. Now, in Concord, New Hampshire, 
the church had a practice where they stacked their muskets in the middle of the church around a post. Their honored pastor, and I love this, who was not only a good shot, but had the best gun in the settlement, always preached from the pulpit with that weapon right up against the pulpit. Why? Because he was there to protect his people. And, of course, he would always take that treasured musket with him as he went to the back door to check out as to whether or not there was any danger lurking around. So, in the founding of our nation, obviously men not only carried their weapons to church, but even the pastor had his. In June 17, June 17, 1755, or 1775 it is, at the outset of the War for Independence, the Provincial Congress, or the Continental Congress, recommended that all men within 20 miles of the seacoast carry their arms and their ammunition with them to the meeting house on the Lord's Day and all other days of public worship. And certainly before the war was ended in 1783, the wisdom of that was discovered over and over as well. Now, I have a question for you. In light of just what I have described to you, giving you these little tidbits of history, don't answer out loud, but ask yourself this question. Were our forefathers right? Were our forefathers biblical? Now, I can assure you the answer to those questions are yes, they were biblical and right. Let me just try to give you some modern-day illustrations to show you the dangers that we're in in this modern-day society. Uh, This one happened in Cape Town, South Africa. You've read about it and heard about it, I'm sure. July the 25th, 1993 at 7.15 p.m. on a Sunday night. Listen carefully. Here it is. A group of five terrorists came to St. James Church, the largest evangelical church in Cape Town, shortly after the evening service began. One of the terrorists, wearing a ski mask, rolled a hand grenade into the packed assembly without warning and opened fire with an AK-47. Shooting from the hip, as he sprayed the worshipers in a deadly attack that left 12 people dead at that particular account and more than 50 severely wounded. The terrorist, and there was another one, by the way, who was about to throw another hand grenade, who was hindered, and I'll explain why in just a moment, but the terrorist (laughs) were men of the communist ANC, which, by the way, was Nelson Mandela's group. As they began firing into the congregation, the one who was about to throw another hand grenade and then shoot his AK-47, he was deterred because there was one missionary there with frontline fellowship who began to return fire with his 38 revolver. The masked men then dashed to a green Mercedes waiting in the parking lot, and as they fled, the report says the missionary, the only armed man in the church, emptied his pistol into the fleeing vehicle, but the terrorists got away. Police said that the missionary's quick action saved at least 100 lives in the church, which averages 1,000 in attendance on Sunday evenings. Now, the reason the next terrorist did not throw his hand grenade or empty his AK-47 is simply because that missionary was firing back at him, and so he ducked and got out of the way. Interestingly enough, the police credited this missionary with saving a minimum of 100 lives. You say, oh, but Brother Weaver, that's in South Africa. 
May I point out something? The two areas in which you and I always feel the safest are in our homes and in our churches. And if you will study history, I don't care if you look at Russia, I don't care where you look, you will find it's always been a tactic of the communist to terrorize people in church because that is where they believe they are the safest. Now, the question you have to ask is this. Was the missionary right to carry a weapon into the Lord's house? Was the missionary right in using that weapon in defense of his life and the lives of others? We could also ask these questions from a different perspective. We could ask it like this. Were those Christians in South Africa wrong, wicked, and unbiblical for not wanting to be murdered? Why did they not take the idea, well, I'm willing to die for the Lord, so I'm willing to die right now. I might as well be murdered right now. Why did they not? Maybe they just weren't spiritual enough. You think that was the problem? Why were they not willing to die at the hands of the communist guerrillas? Let me ask you a question. If someone came through that door with a weapon and began shooting, intentionally trying to murder, maim, and kill, would you just be willing to die? Just to die? I, I could ask it another way. Had you rather die, or had you rather the terrorist or the communist or the murderer die? Now stop and think about it like that. Now let me show you that what I'm sharing with you is not limited to South Africa. August the 12th, 2007, a lone gunman, Iken Simone, opened fire in a Missouri Micronesian church, killing the pastor and two of the church goers. May 20th, 2007, a standoff between police and a suspect in the shootings of three people in Moscow, Idaho Presbyterian Church ended with three dead, including one police officer. Although not a church building, on October the 2nd, 2006, the attack in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, by a gunman who went to that army school, which was a religious school, and killed those five girls. May the 21st, 2006, Louisiana. Four were killed by a man at Jesus Christ Church. February the 26th, 2006, Michigan. Two people were killed at Zion Hope Missionary Baptist Church by a man who went there reportedly looking for his girlfriend. After he killed two people, he then turned around and killed himself. April the 9th, 2005, a 27-year-old airman died after being shot at a church in College Park, Georgia, where he had once worked as a security guard, by the way. March 12, 2005, a man walked in the services of the Living Church of God in Milwaukee and opened fire, killing seven people. October the 5th, 2003, a woman opened fire in Turner Monumental AME Church in Kirkwood, which is east of Atlanta, and killed the pastor and two others. September the 16th, 1999, seven young people were killed when a man opened fire during a prayer service for teens in Wedgwood Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. In our day and time, just because you're in church does not necessarily mean that you are in a safe place. Look at your Bibles in Exodus 20 and verse 13 again. Look what God says. Thou shalt not kill. 
thou shalt not kill. And now each of us recognize that this is the sixth commandment, one of the ten. I get so aggravated at some people sometime when they say, oh, but Brother Weaver, that's Jewish law. That's not Jewish law. This is God's law that was given by Moses. If you want to find Jewish law, then you go to the Mishnah, the Gemara, and the Talmud. That's where you find Jewish law. You find God's law in the Bible. And if you would read Matthew 7, or Mark 7 it is, and Matthew 15, you'll even find that Jesus Christ himself attacked Jewish law. And he said by their traditions they made void the law of God. What I want to emphasize tonight is God's law. It is biblical law. It is the biblical doctrine of self-defense. Now, in order to be biblical, we must ascertain what it means when God says, Thou shalt not kill. Actually, it is, Thou shalt not murder. Or, Thou shalt not take life unjustly. I don't care if you look at it in the Hebrew. I don't care if you look at it in the Greek and the New Testament. It's, Thou shalt not murder. There's a vast difference between murder and taking a life. Now, listen. Taking a life may be murder. But taking a life may not be murder as well. One may lawfully, according to the Bible, take life without murdering. The sixth commandment simply means thou shalt not murder or thou shalt not take life unjustly or wickedly. Or you could say it like this, thou shalt not take life except on God's terms. Do you realize there are instances in the Bible where God demands that life be taken. Everyone can quote there in the book of Genesis, whosoever sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. But did you know that there are 18 specific reasons given in the Bible, 18 named by God, where God demands that life is to be taken. Let me just give you these 18. I'm not going to take time to comment on them. I'll just tell you what they are. First of all, Life is to be taken for murder, but not for accidental killing. Exodus 21, 12 through 14. Secondly, life is to be forfeited for striking or cursing a parent. Exodus 21, 15. Leviticus 29. Proverbs 20, 20. Matthew 15, verse 4. And Mark chapter 7 and verse 10. Thirdly, life is to be taken for kidnapping. The kidnapper is to be put to death. Exodus 21, verse 16. Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. Fourthly, God demands the death penalty for adultery. Leviticus 20, verses 10 through 21. The death penalty is to be given for incest. Leviticus 20, verses 11 through 14. The death penalty is to be given for bestiality. Exodus 22, 19 and Leviticus 20, verses 15 through 16. The death penalty is demanded, demanded for sodomy or homosexuality. Leviticus 20, verse 13. It's also demanded for unchastity, Deuteronomy 20, verse 22, verses 20 through 21. It's also demanded for the rape of a betrothed virgin in Deuteronomy 22. We'll look at that a little bit later. It's also demanded for witchcraft, Exodus 22, verse 18. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. The death penalty is demanded for offering human sacrifice, Leviticus 20, verse 21. The death penalty is demanded for an incorrigible delinquent or an habitual criminality in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. The death penalty is demanded for blasphemy, Leviticus 24. The death penalty is demanded for a Sabbath desecration, Exodus 35, Numbers 15. It's demanded for the propagation of false doctrine, Deuteronomy 13. It's demanded for sacrificing the false gods, Exodus 22. 
It's demanded for refusing to abide by the decision of a biblical court of law, Deuteronomy 17. And it's also demanded for failing to restore the pledge or the bailment in Exodus chapter 18, verses 12 through 13. Now, whether you understand these 18 reasons or not, whether you agree with them or not, is immaterial. Any honest reading of the scripture you will find that in these 18 specific instances, God demands that life be taken. In other words, when God demands that life is to be taken, it may be taken lawfully because it's being taken upon his terms. Now, when God says thou shalt not kill, the sixth commandment forbids all unjust violence as well as murder. Think about this. The sixth commandment forbids all unjust violence as well as murder. Why? Because when God forbids any act, at the same time, he forbids any and everything that would lead up to that act. Now, when God says, thou shalt not kill, we must understand there is an unlawful taking of life but there is also a lawful taking of life. And we could add to the list one additional lawful means of taking life. We could call it number 19, and that is lawful self-defense. Now, I'm not adding to Scripture because I'm going to show you how over and over through Scripture, self-defense is, basically, is basically obligatory. Now, God gave us Ten Commandments. Have you ever noticed that God's law is always expressed in negative terms? Now, there are two of the commandments that are positive, but they're undergirded with negatives as well. So it's important for you and I to understand the negativity of the law. Have you ever stopped to think about this? And it doesn't matter if you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament. But think about it in this light. Every negative has a positive. And every positive has a negative. When you read a passage like, thou shalt not commit adultery, that's a negative. You ought to automatically ask yourself, well, what is the positive? The positive side of thou shalt not commit adultery is thou shalt live a holy, pure, godly, sanctified life. When you read something like thou shalt not steal, that's a negative. What's the positive? That you are to live a holy honest life, according to Ephesians 4, working with your hands that you may have to give to him that needeth. When you read, thou shalt not kill, that's a negative. It also has a positive, and the positive is, thou shalt preserve life. So the sixth commandment then has both a negative and a positive. On the one hand, you're not to take life unjustly and unlawfully. On the other hand, you have a responsibility to preserve life. I'm going to show you that self-defense according to the sixth commandment is obligatory. You see, God has given us a duty. God has given us an obligation. God has given us a command not to kill. From that duty, from that obligation, from that command, we infer that we have a duty not to kill ourselves nor to allow ourselves to be killed. In other words, in order to obey the sixth commandment, we must preserve lives. We must preserve our life. So self-defense is obligatory. So if Steve came up to me after 
service, stuck a pistol in my face and said, now, Brother Weaver, I'm just going to kill you right now. What am I to do? Is my attitude to be, well, just go ahead, whatever makes your day, just go ahead and do it. I'm ready to die. No, no, that's not going to be my attitude. Because my attitude is that, that I am consenting to self-murder. I'm helping him to take my life. I have to do everything I can to stop him from taking my life in order to obey the sixth commandment. So if we do not defend ourselves, then we are not preserving our lives. Preserving our lives means that we must defend ourselves. For thou shalt not kill has the positive thou shalt preserve life. If you do not defend yourself, then you're allowing yourself to be murdered at the hands of another And thus you're violating the Sixth Commandment. So the Sixth Commandment then teaches us that self-defense is obligatory. Many of you men were in the military. I remember standing in line at the chow hall. You know, you had those (laughs) ten orders right there that you always had to memorize. And I've forgotten most of them except I'll stand my post in a military manner. You, you You know what I'm saying. But you remember Article 3 of the Military Code? This was beat into our brains. Article 3 of the Military Code says this. If I am captured, I will continue to resist by all means available. I will make every effort to escape and to aid others to escape. I will accept neither parole nor special favors from the enemy. Why in the world do you think the United States Military Code has Article 3 there? I will make every effort to escape and to, add, and to aid others in their attempts to escape. Article 3 is not put there just so that perhaps you might escape your captors and get back with further information that would help the United States Army. No, no, no. Article 3 is there because even back when it was placed, everyone recognized that it was our duty to defend our lives. Self-defense is obligatory. You must defend yourself. If you're captured, you must endeavor to escape. You must try to get away. Now, let's ask a question. Is self-defense biblical? Is self-defense right? I've had people try to argue with me in that line. I remember I was preaching in Indiana, and uh, I was dealing with Romans chapter 13. And after service, a man came up, had his wife and a bunch of little kids there, and he asked me, he said, do you believe in self-defense? I said, well, yes, I do. He said, well, I don't. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I think if someone breaks into my house that, uh, you know, if it's God's will that they kill us, they, they just kill us. I looked at him. I said, sir, I can say one thing. I, I can't speak for your wife, but I'm speaking for myself. I sure am glad I'm not married to you. And I sure am glad I'm not your children. If that's your attitude. Now, let me just show you. If self-defense wrong. If it is wrong, why does God defend his people? 
Is it ever wrong to emulate our Heavenly Father? Well, of course not. I want you to turn in your Bibles very quickly to 2 Kings chapter 19. We'll turn to several passages real hurriedly just to show you one particular truth. Notice 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 34. Notice what God says. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 34. And God is speaking. He says this, For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now God said, I'm going to defend Jerusalem. I'm going to defend Jerusalem and I'm going to save this city and I'm going to defend it and I'm going to save it for my sake and for David's sake. Now, isn't that interesting? God tells Hezekiah, the king of Judah, that he's going to defend his people and Jerusalem from the Assyrians. And Hezekiah does not need to worry. Why? Because God is going to undertake to defend that city. God is going to take care of the wicked, evil Assyrians in and of himself. Now, turn right over to 2 Kings chapter 20 and look, if you would please, at verse 6. 2 Kings 20 and verse 6. Look what God tells Hezekiah. And I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Again, God says, I'm going to defend this city. Turn over to Isaiah 31. Note, if you would please, the emphasis that God places on the fact that he is going to do the defending. Notice in Isaiah 31, verse 5. Isaiah 31, verse 5. Isaiah 31, verse 5, God says, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it, and passing over, he will preserve it. Notice, as birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts. By the way, I hope you remember what the word hosts refers to. As birds flying, so will the Lord of the armies defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. Turn right over to Isaiah 37 and look in verse 35. Isaiah 37, verse 35. Note, if you would, again God says, For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. You know, God keeps saying the same thing. I wonder why he's emphasizing this particular truth. Then if you look in Isaiah 38 and verse 6, God says again, And I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Now, since I've established from Scripture that God himself was going to defend Jerusalem and his people, you have to ask yourself this question. Did God take any lives in defending his people and defending Jerusalem? Well, look in Isaiah 37 and verse 36 and you will find the answer to that. Isaiah 37, notice if you would verse 36. After God says in verse 35, For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and 85,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. That is, those who woke up, those who were not killed, found 185,000 dead Assyrians. Now, here's my question. 
Could God not have caused those Assyrians to leave without killing them? Well, of course he could have. But he didn't. He took lives. He did not allow those men to escape. Now, will anyone be so blasphemous as to accuse God of murder? Would anyone be so blasphemous as to say that God did not have the right to take the lives of those wicked men who were there trying to destroy the lives of his people? Do you realize over and over in Scripture, for instance, Psalm 7, verse 10, David said, My defense is of God who saveth the upright in heart. And when you read passages like Psalm 59, verse 9, verse 16, verse 17, Psalm 62, verse 2 and 6, Psalm 94, verse 22, David repeats over and over that God is his defense. What is David saying? David is saying, I'm relying upon the grace and the mercy and the power of God to defend me and to defend the righteous. In Psalm 89 and verse 18, David said, For the Lord is our defense and the Holy One of Israel is our King. Notice he said, For the Lord is our defense. We may rightly conclude that God defends His people. He defends His cause. He defends His honor. He defends His glory. It is never wrong to emulate our Heavenly Father. When lives must be and are taken in lawful self-defense and in the defense of others, it is not murder. Now, I can hear someone voicing an objection right now. Oh, but Brother Weaver, what God does and what we do are two different things. For we are not God. Granted, we are not God, and we will never be God, yet it is equally clear from Scripture that God also enables and empowers men to take the lives of others in defending themselves and in defending others. For instance, look back in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 10 and verse 1. In fact, if I had time tonight, I could take you throughout the book of Judges. But notice, if you would, what is specifically said concerning Tola. Judges chapter 10, verse 1. Notice, and after Abimelech there arose to defend Israel, Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in Mount Ephraim. Note, and after Abimelech there arose, what? To defend Israel. Who raised up those judges in the book of Judges? God did. Why did God raise them up? To defend the people. Did they fight? Yes. Did they take lives? Yes. And God raised them up. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Here you have a listing of David's mighty men. And I'm not going to read all of this passage, but there is a very important passage that you need to look at in light of this. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 23, beginning there with verse 8. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachamite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was Adino, the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, 
one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were there gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. He arose, now watch, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave under the sword. Are you watching? And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. Now watch carefully. And after him was Shema, the son of A.G. the Harahite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop, where was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood, that is Shema, he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. Help me out. And the Lord wrought a great victory. Wow. Well, I thought it was these men that were fighting. How could the Lord work a great victory? Because it was God who was empowering and enabling these men to fight. And notice, if you would, certainly lives were taken. God empowered these men. Who made them great? Who gave them their abilities? Who made them such powerful fighters? Who gave them the ability to defend themselves and others? The answer is it was God. Therefore, God gets all the honor and glory. The Lord wrought a great victory. There's a very important lesson here. We need to learn to use the means that God has ordained while at the same time trusting in the Lord and not the means. These great men use swords, they use bows, they use arrows, they use probably all kinds of weapons, yet they trusted in the Lord to make those weapons effectual. Let me just point out, Means are worthless in and of themselves. Unless God empowers them and enables them to be made effectual, they are totally, absolutely worthless. You say, well, pastor, let me ask you a question. Do you keep a loaded weapon in your bedroom? Oh, yes. In several rooms. And probably more than one. You say, oh, well, in that case then, you're trusting in the means. You're trusting in those weapons for your defense and for your safety. No, that's not true. I'm trusting in the Lord. Let me tell you something. I could have my bedroom stocked with weapons. I could have 50 caliber machine guns. I could have bazookas. I could have a tank in there if I could fit it in there. But do you know something? If God does not awaken me in time and enable me to shoot straight, all the weapons in the world will not do me any good. You see? There is a means, but it is God who makes the means. And How about this one? It's so simple. Beat thy child with a rod. If thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt deliver his soul from hell. Does that mean... That every child that you whip with a switch is going to heaven? If so, if that's what it means, the best evangelism that we can do is grab a switch and get out on the streets of Greenville and start whipping. No, you know what it means. It means if you diligently, consistently use the means that God has ordained with his blessings upon those means, those means will be made effectual. You cannot have means... Without the blessings upon. You see, here's where most people are. Most people say, well, I don't have to have a weapon of any type in my home. 
because I'm trusting in the Lord. You're presumptuous. What you're doing is trusting God to do something for you that he's demanded that you do for yourself. On the other hand, here men say, well, I don't need God. I've got a pistol. Then you're trusting in the means. (laughs) I have a good friend that's a missionary pilot. And when all of these rapes and murders were going on over in Africa, he volunteered with his plane to go in and get the missionaries' families out. He could not get everyone out at one time. So he told the men, he said, look, you have weapons, use them. And I will get back to you as quickly as I can. He talked to one man. The one man said, I don't have weapons, and I wouldn't use one if I had one. I'm trusting in the Lord. Good, said my missionary pilot friend. I'll take you out last. (laughs) Well, you see what I'm saying. You have to understand that God must make the means effectual. If he doesn't make it effectual, they will not work, nor can you ignore your responsibility to preserve your life and say the Lord is just going to work it out for me. No, you have a responsibility. Now, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, and let me show you an Old Testament illustration. Acts chapter 7, and let's begin reading there with verse 22. Everyone will immediately recognize this illustration. Acts chapter 7, verse 22. The Bible says that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Now I want you to know what the Bible said. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him. Now here's my question. Was Moses wrong in defending his brother? Interestingly enough, the act of Moses in taking the life of this Egyptian in defense of an Israelite is not condemned in the Old Testament, nor is it condemned in the New Testament. In fact, you might as well say that this act was commended by God, for God placed Moses in Hebrews 11 in the heroes of faith. You say, oh, but Brother Weaver, Moses had to flee out into the desert for 40 years. Yes, he did, but only because of the tyranny and despotism of Pharaoh. Not because Moses had violated the law of God. Not because Moses had done something wrong. But because there was a reprobate on the throne. And he was an unjust tyrant. Now if you would be so kind as to turn back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let me show you another interesting passage. One that we're all familiar with. But in light of what we're talking about. Here's the interesting passage. 1 Samuel 17 where David meets Goliath. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I want you to note how Goliath purposefully and deliberately presses the attack. You know the story. I don't have to go into it. But let's begin reading there with verse 43. 1 Samuel 17, verse 43. 
And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. So what's the Philistine doing? He's deliberately pressing the attack. He says, you come on, young boy. I'll kill you just like I'll kill anybody else. Notice David's response, verse 45. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day into the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Watch, and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword nor spear, but the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Now let me ask you something. Here this Philistine and the representative of all of his armies were cursing God and cursing Israel. David said, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a shield. I come to you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. And let me tell you, I'm going to smite you. I'm going to take your head from you. Do you think that David planned to kill Goliath. Well, of course he did. He told him exactly what he was going to do. And you notice what else he said? The reason I'm going to do this is because the battle is the Lord's. God will give you into my hands. David had the sling. He didn't have all his weapons. He said, I just have a sling. And I'm going to take five smooth stones. But it's God who's going to make this effectual. And, of course, he used Goliath's own sword to sever his head from his body. Now, the point I'm trying to make is this. David intended a death blow upon Goliath. But who was it that enabled David? Who is, was it that empowered David? It was the Lord. The death of Goliath was not murder. It was life taken in self-defense and in defense of others. Therefore, it was lawfully Taken. The point I want you to see tonight is very simple. Self-defense is obligatory and it is not murder. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 22. I love to teach the applications from the law of God. There are, these things are so simple and so plain and I want you to notice how clearly they are taught in the Scripture. Look in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. This is a wonderful message on restitution if I had time to preach it tonight. But notice God said, If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now there is a reason for the ratio that is listed. If you study the Bible, you'll find out that there is a 20% restitution, there's a twofold restitution, there's a fourfold restitution, and there's a fivefold restitution, and there's a reason for those degrees of restitution. But notice what he says in verse 2. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. 
If the son be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Now, I want you to note what God says. Let's go back to verse 1. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Then he says, if a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. Now we're talking about a man who is breaking into someone's home. Let me go further. The man is not really just breaking into the home. He's breaking into private property. He is stealing horses and oxen and sheep. And the last I checked, horses and oxen and sheep do not live inside the house. They live inside barns. So here's a man just on private property. But it's night. He's coming in to your home or into your property. You can't see him plainly enough to identify him. You do not know whether he's armed or not. And here's what God says in verse 2. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he died, there shall no blood be shed for him. What does God say? God said if he's breaking at night, you don't know who he is. You don't know whether he's armed or not. Just shoot him. He ought not to be there. He ought not to be breaking in. He has some evil intentions or he would not be breaking in. Now look what God says in verse 3. If the sun be risen upon him... There shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Now, this is very plain. So here it is daylight. Sean's breaking into my house. Huh, I can see him. I can identify him. I can also see that he's not armed. My life is not in danger. So whether I capture him, Or whether I call the sheriff and say, it was Sean, I saw him. Go to his house, you'll find my property there. Now he's to make restitution. But now there is a way that I could shoot. And I'm using the word shoot. If I had a weapon or whatever was at my hand. There is a way that I could lawfully take his life in the daytime. How is that? He's on my property. I see him and I also see he has a weapon. And he's threatening me with the weapon. Now I may shoot him even though it's daylight because now it's self-defense. He's attempting to take my life and I'm defending my life in obedience to the sixth commandment. So here's what God says. If a thief is breaking in at night, no blood is to be shed for him. If it's daylight and you can see that he's not armed, hey, he's to make restitution. You know, I'm constantly amazed at the ignorance of most professing Christians on this subject. Years ago, I was in this city, and a man came up to me who was a professing Christian, and he said, I have a question for you. I said, fine, go ahead. He said, what would you do if you woke up during the night and a man was breaking into your bedroom window, coming through into your bedroom? I said, well, that depends. He said, depends upon what? I said, it depends upon whether or not I get my hands on a gun or not. If I get my hands on a gun, I'd shoot him. I said, if I couldn't get my hands on a gun, I'd take a baseball bat and beat him in the head. Well, he said, I don't think you should do that. I said, what do you think I should do? So help me, I'm not making this up. 
These are his exact words. He said, I think you should go in the other room and pray about it. I said, you mean to say I should be in another room praying while the man is in there either raping my wife or killing my children? I said, I'd pray all right. I'd pull that baseball bat back and I'd say, oh God, don't let me miss him this time. Pow! That's how I'd pray. Because God has given me the responsibility to defend my house and my wife and my children. And God says very plainly here in the book of Exodus chapter 22, if a thief be found breaking in, no blood's to be shed for him. He ought not to have been there to begin with. Now, this is not saying you've got carte blanche to shoot anybody anytime. Not saying that at all. But if your life is in danger or the life of your family is in danger, yes, you may lawfully take life. Look in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. And let's begin reading there with verse 23. In fact, I want to read through verse 27, and then we're going to come back and comment on this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23. God says, If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto an husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then you shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and you shall stone with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so shalt thou put evil from among you. Verse 25. But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man riseth against his neighbor and slayeth him, even so it is in this manner, for he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there's none to save her. Now, interestingly enough, there's a difference between these two verses. In verses 23 and 24, a betrothed woman is found in the city, and a man takes her and lays with her. God says you take the man and you take the woman out and you kill them both. When you skip down to verses 25 and 26, here's the woman that's found in the field. And now God says, although the same thing happens, you only put the man to death. Why? What's the difference? Well, if you'll go back to verse 25, now let's read verse 24 as well. Then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city, and you shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, watch, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so shalt thou put away evil from among you. Now he says you take the man and the woman in the city, and you put them both to death. Why? Because the woman was in the city, and she did not cry out. I'll explain that in just a moment. If she did not cry out, it means that she was consenting to the sin. She was consenting to the crime. And therefore, she is to be put to death as well. She's equally guilty. However, when you come down to verse 25, the damsel is found in the field. And there only the man is to be put to death. Why? Look in verse 26. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There's in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man riseth against his neighbor and slayeth him, even so it is in this matter. For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. 
Ah. Let's go back. You remember this woman in the city? God says she's to be put to death. Why? Because she did not cry out. What does that mean? That means, listen carefully, if she had cried out, anyone who heard her would have had the responsibility and the duty and the obligation to save her and defend her. The woman in the field cried, but there was none to save her. No one could hear her. But in the city, someone could have heard her. I want you to notice what God is saying. God is telling us that we have a responsibility not only to preserve our lives, but we have the responsibility to preserve the lives of others. Let me give you three illustrations. The first one, some of you heard about and have forgotten. But in 1964, there was a young woman by the name of Kitty Genovese. She was brutally murdered. She was caught out on the sidewalk. She was raped. She was robbed. She was stabbed 17 times. During the entire episode, she was screaming and crying and begging for help. 38 people either heard or witnessed the crime. Not one lifted a finger to help her. A few called the police. But that was it. Now I want to tell you something. Think this through. According to God's law, those 38 people who could have saved that woman and did not, I believe are just as guilty of murder as the man who plunged that knife into her 17 times. Because the Sixth Commandment teaches us that we are to preserve life. Interestingly enough, here is a newspaper article that I just got. This happened on Wednesday, June the 25th, 2008, in Philadelphia. Here was a woman who was beaten, raped repeatedly, robbed four hours in the hall of an apartment building, then taken into an apartment People heard her scream, did not even call the cops. After her attacker left, she stumbled and walked a mile to the 39th police district to report the attack. When some of the neighbors found out what really happened, one woman said, I heard her scream, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my God, but I didn't pay any attention. I just laid back down and went to sleep. June the 27th, 2008. Cars slow down to watch teens beat homeless man to death. 
No one stopped. 42-year-old man was beaten to death by attackers between the ages of 14 and 17. And he was robbed of his music player and his headphones. What did the people do? They just slowed down and watched those teenagers beat him to death. Never lifted a finger. The sixth commandment means thou shalt preserve life. I want to show you. I want you to turn in your your Bibles to two passages. I want you to go to Deuteronomy 22 and Exodus 23. I want us to look at these. Deuteronomy 22, Exodus 23. I want to show you an illustration of case law. You see, the Bible is really given to us in case law. You have these broad principles like thou shalt not kill. Then God gives you specific cases that illustrate that principle. Then he expects you to make the application from those specific cases. Let me show you how punctilious God is when it comes to saving life. Let's look in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 4. God says, Thou shalt not see thy brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way, And hide thyself from them. Thou shalt surely help him to lift them up again. Now I want you to watch this passage. You see your brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way. Sometimes the ass or ox may be fallen uh, in giving birth. Sometimes they could be trapped in a mud hole or trapped some other way. Or some disease or some sickness or some injury. And God says, if you see your brother's ox or ass in trouble, his life is in danger, he's dying, or a possibility he might die, thou shalt not hide thyself from them. Thou shalt surely help him to lift them up again. Now, what is God saying? God says, if you see even your brother's animal's life in danger, you can't bypass it. Now, down on the farm, when we see our neighbor's cows out, we call our neighbor. And if necessary, we help them get those cows back in. Same thing with a horse, same thing with any animal. God says, you can't do that. You say, Brother Weaver, I don't mind helping my brother. I'd be glad to do that for my own brother. Oh, well, let's look in Exodus chapter 23, and let's begin reading there with verse 4. Exodus 23, verse 4. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldst forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Ah, now it's not your brother. Now it's your enemy. Now it's the man that hates you. You see his animal in trouble. What does God say? You cannot hide yourself. You must surely help save the life of that animal. I don't know if you've ever had a 
huge animal in trouble or not. But I got news for you. You need all the help you can get. I had a horse that I took down to this beautiful little clear stream to drink water. Sand! And when that horse got to the edge of that sand to drink that water, he sunk into the sand up to his chest. It was like quicksand. It took me hours to get that horse out of that mess. Thankfully, someone did stop and help me get him out. But God says, if you see your brother's animal needing help, you can't hide yourself. If you see your enemy's animal needing help, you can't hide yourself. You must help. Now, let me tell you what God is doing. In Deuteronomy 22 and in Exodus 23, this is called arguing from the less to the greater. If God holds you responsible to help preserve the the life of your brother's animal, how much more does he hold you responsible to help preserve your brother's life? If God holds you responsible to protect the lives of your enemy's animals, the man that hates you, you don't particularly like him, how much more does he hold you responsible to protect his life and preserve his life? You see, folks, self-defense and the preservation of the lives of others is mandatory. It is obligatory in the Word of God. I don't care where you turn, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you're going to find we're responsible to preserve life. We're responsible to defend our lives and the lives of others. Now, let me just try to tie this together tonight by making one simple application. And I want you to consider this truth. Have you ever noticed how animals, wild animals or even tame animals, will preserve their young? When we lived here in Greenville, we had a mockingbird that had a nest in our shrubbery. And this great big old tomcat went strutting by that shrubbery. You know what? That mama mockingbird came out and pecked his head every time until she ran him off. He was not getting her babies. Go down on the farm, and if you don't know how, you see that mother sound those cute little pigs. You know, I've often wondered how in the world something so clean and so cute when they're born could grow up to be so ugly and dirty when they're grown, you know. But I don't, let me tell you what you do. You pick up one of those little piglets if you don't know how to pick one up. And you let him squeal. And you see if that sow won't eat you alive. She'll nail you. I don't care which animal you take. I don't care which animal you pick. Every animal will defend its family. It will defend its young. It will defend its life. My father went deer hunting. He shot a nice buck. He had a 30 alt 6 When he got down out of the tree and went over to the buck, the buck wasn't dead. 
He's pretty badly hurt, but he wasn't dead. So dad just, you know, aimed at him again to come finish him off and click. His rifle had jammed. And so here he is trying to work the jam out and the buck gets up. And when he gets up, he backs up and shakes his head like that at dad and starts charging dad. I have that 30 alt six today. Dad broke the stock over his neck. Killed the deer. You say, that was a bad deer. That wasn't a bad deer. That deer was just protecting its life. It was defending itself. Would it not be a terrible anomaly if God graciously, mercifully allowed animals to protect their lives and their families and forbade us that same liberty? You know, our Lord said it like this. Matthew 10 and verse 31. Fear you not. You're of more value than many sparrows. The birds can protect their families. And our Lord says, don't fear. You're far more valuable than many sparrows. Is it right to defend yourself in the lives of others? Yes. Is it biblical? Yes. The sixth commandment has as its positive, thou shalt preserve life. Self-defense and the defense of others is obligatory according to the law of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful tonight for your word. And once again, Lord, we acknowledge the fact that your word is full Your word is relevant. Your word touches on every subject. It answers all of our questions. Help us, Heavenly Father, to love it, to read it, to study it, to apply it, to understand it, and to give you the honor and the glory by bringing our lives in conformity to your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask and pray, amen.